Yeah, and we got a great team on board. We uh, check. Uh, we start this off with Chuck Basie, former state representative in the state of Missouri. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, sir. And Garson is in from Graffs in Mexico, Missouri. Well worth the ride. Good morning, sir. Good morning. That was very exciting. I, I like the way you did that. And, of course, Dale Roberts, uh, MoGunLaw.com. Dale, how are you? Yes, sir. I'm well, thank you. How are you doing this morning? Doing pretty well. Did you look into that question I'd ask you? I did, and I only have a partial answer. Um, I don't know if you want to do it on the air, but I'm working on it. Well, it's strange. It's just a strange question. Somebody wanted to know if they had a concealed carry permit in the state of Missouri, and they moved, say, to Indiana, could they keep their state of Missouri concealed carry license? Or would it expire the moment they got a driver's license somewhere else? What if they went to the, to the sheriff's department and said, uh, you know, I've, I've moved to Smith Street, Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and, and uh, does it remain intact? So uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. In the meantime, Dr. John Lott, uh, who I think is probably the most brilliant researcher on the Second Amendment, uh, had a, a conversation uh, with uh, uh, the Federalist Society on guns. And he talks about, among other things, Minorities. I mean, everybody is, you know, concerned about the the death rate with minorities, and uh, everybody is also concerned with just virtually overall crime increases across the country, violent crime increases. So he addresses all that, and he also talks about an experience he had working under the uh, Trump administration, trying to get details on the NICS check. Are we all agreed all around the table here that uh, the NICS check is essentially useless? Garson? Oh, it's it's even more, well, it's worse than useless, I guess I should say. Yeah. Uh, Dale? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, Chuck? Um, I'll say no opinion. I don't know <laughs> enough about, I, you know, I, I know you have to do one to get a firearm, but uh, I, I think they could change it to where it make it a lot better. Well, it's interesting because that's a point that's made uh, by uh, uh, Dr. Lott. So here is, uh, these are a couple of segments that I've uh, cut out to play, and then uh, we'll chat about it. First, uh, some, some information about why crime is so high. Uh, violent crime has soared in the United States over the last couple of years. Uh, and it's not really a mystery what's happened. You know, in Chicago, they cut the number of police officers in, tw in 2020 by 400 positions. Plus, they moved literally dozens of others from doing kind of normal patrol actions to protect Mayor Lightfoot and other important city council people. Uh, but, you know, across the country, you've had New York City cut its police budget by a billion dollars a year, Los Angeles by 150 million, D.C. by 15 million, and so on. Um, and, uh, of course, you have people like uh, Kim Fox, your DA here, uh, who refuses to prosecute many violent criminals. One of my favorite stories of hers was about a year and a half ago, you had two rival drug gangs fighting it out at about 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you may have heard about this, where uh, the whole fight was caught on high-definition video, and you also had uh, police officers there present witnessing and shooting each other. Uh, one person was killed, people were sent to the hospital. 
Pence's um, uh, office refused initially to prosecute them under the explanation that it was mutually agreed to combat. <laughs> they later uh, decided not to prosecute them because uh, they just didn't have enough evidence, which Lori Whitefoot, a former prosecutor, even for her, given how left-wing she was, was too much given that it was caught on high-definition video and you can see who was actually firing the shots and, uh, and other evidence there. Uh, and we've had other things like uh, large percentages of inmates being released from jails and prisons in many urban areas. You've had half of the inmates being released. There's some urban areas where you've had over two-thirds of the inmates being released from uh, prisons over the last couple of years. You know, the thing is, if you're talking about somebody who's 65 or whatever, I could understand that. But as you know, the vast majority of criminals there are young males. Uh, they're not the type of people that are particularly susceptible to COVID. And then, of course, we've had bail reform. Uh, for anybody who's in law and economics here, I'll just mention one thing, and that is uh, take something like the uh, Wisconsin murderer, mass murderer, who drove his SUV into the Christmas parade uh, a little bit over a year ago, killing six people and sending 61 people to the hospital. Uh, he previously had been arrested and was facing trial for attempted murder of the mother of his child. And he had three other felonies that he was facing. If you add up all the felonies that he was facing there, he was facing literally 30 years in prison. He's 38 years old. He's already essentially facing a life sentence. You know, I don't know if you look at the statistics for life expectancy in prison, but for somebody like that, there's like over two-thirds probability that they'll die before they get to the end of their term. And, uh, um, but he was released on $1,000 bail, which meant he had to put up a whole hundred dollars in order to get out. And, but the question is, what additional, you know, in terms of law and economics, what was the marginal penalty that you can impose on him if he goes and kills a person? It's like zero, he's already facing life sentence. You give him a second life sentence, you know, in case he has a second life there, that you can make sure that he'll be punished for that, or the third life sentence, or the fourth, or the fifth. Essentially, you're in a situation where he gets free crimes because there's no additional penalty that you can impose on. So there are lots of things here that one could talk about, about why violent crime's gone up, but kind of as an economist, it's pretty straightforward that if you make it so that there's no risk to committing crime, guess what? You're going to have more crime that's going to be committed. Well, I, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know if you guys have thought about it. I, he's already in trouble. No matter what he does after he, you know, uh, is released, he's got no additional punishment. And then this... Uh, drop in the number of law enforcement officers and these George Soros prosecutors who are unwilling to prosecute crime. Dale, is that any surprise that we're seeing an increase? No, and I, I think the increase has been going on longer than than we have recognized. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, working with law enforcement officers as I did previously, you know, every two weeks we'd have a, a board meeting and sit around and talk business and then they'd sit around and talk shop. And I've heard from officers for a long time 
about the decreasing support from prosecutors and the increasing number of people who are, you know, out on bail, um, you know, not facing much in the way of consequences for their actions. And word of that spreads really quickly. I mean, criminals talk to each other and they adjust their conduct accordingly. So, uh, you know, A, it's no surprise. B, I think it's been going on for a while. And it concerns me and a lot of people I talk to greatly. Well, I think um, it, it, watching what's going on in society, because it, it really feels to me, uh, Garson, like we're devolving as a society. Uh, we're, exp- you know, we're, we're changing the norms. Uh, we're accepting what I would have thought uh, 20 years ago was just pure nonsense. And as that devolves... I think more and more Americans, and I really think we saw this happen over the last couple of years, go out and buy guns because they realize they're the only ones that can protect themselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, smart people know that the only way to protect themselves is their own personal, you know, um, ability. But, yeah, I I wouldn't say society is devolving. I say we're evolving into an unsustainable um, quagmire of insanity. Well, I call that devolving. Yeah, but I mean, it's 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 moving past what we had, but in a bad way. I mean, I I, I don't know. <laughs> in a bad way, I I uh, Chuck, would you agree? Absolutely. You know, um, kind of piggybacking on what Dale said about the uh, the attack on law enforcement. I, I was in Southeast Missouri yesterday, and I uh, met a gentleman that had uh, 30 years as a police officer in St. Louis, and he said most of his time was spent in North St. Louis. And he's been, I think he was 72 years old, if I remember right, but he said that um, if he was in that environment today he said he wouldn't last as a police officer because uh, just the way things are going and and we talked about the uh the circuit attorney over there uh, kim gardner and her the way she's behaved it's just it's very very sad you know there's a she came out a couple of uh, years ago and said that if she got cases from a certain amount of police officers just because of who they were that she wouldn't even that she wouldn't even address it and, and how does uh, she get reelected? I, I don't know. And, uh, man, and they just passed a bill uh, in the House, anyway, it's over in the Senate now, that would allow the governor to appoint a special prosecutor for just cases like that over in St. Louis. And, of course, it turned into a racial thing. Uh, it shouldn't have. Um, I know that's not the intent of the bill sponsor because I know that man. He's a very good person. Lane Roberts. And um, a former police officer. And he, he was the head of the Department of Public Safety for... For several years, yeah, from Joplin. Um, but they have to do something over the, in the high crime areas, especially in St. Louis, where all that uh, terrible, terrible crimes happening. They got to protect those citizens over there that that don't want to live in that uh, that environment. All right, I'm up against the clock. We got more Dr. John Lott, including a fascinating story. I mean, really fascinating. You got to hear this about how the federal government um, and the Nix check discriminates against blacks. And they don't seem to want to acknowledge it. That'll be coming up a little later in the program on Gary on Gun. Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Garson is in from Graf Show and Tell. He's going to talk about some firearms that are available down there soon. Uh, Then we got Chuck Basie, former state representative and Second Amendment supporter. He is uh, with us as well. 
and uh, Dale Roberts, uh, MoGunLaw.com. We've uh, been talking about Dr. John Lott. He made an address in Chicago to the Federalist Society about guns, and he starts talking about minorities where there's a great deal of violent crime and how these NICS checks and government regulations actually endanger them in greater numbers. Uh, so we'll go back to Dr. Lott for a few. Who shops in those businesses? It's going to be similar people, the minorities, heavily black areas that are there. Um, and who owns houses in those areas? It's going to be basically poor blacks whose housing values will go down as you have increases in crime. So um, uh, the people that are harmed from crime Okay, you know, you have a lot of people say that they care about the poor and they care about minorities, so we have this push these days to lower the penalties for minorities. But what you end up having uh, at the same time then is the very victims are overwhelmingly the same type of people that they claim that they care about. So I just want to show you some stuff. We just updated this. This is data for 2020. Uh, 1% of the counties in the United States account for 42% of the murders. 2% of the counties in the United States, which make about 27% of the population, account for 56% of the murders. The 5% worst counties in the United States account for 73% of the murders, okay? Uh, and, and if you look at what's called murder maps for these places, and the vast majority of these counties where you have the murders concentrated, about two-thirds of the murders occur within 10 block areas of, uh, so it's very, not only is it concentrated in a few counties, but within those counties, the murders are very heavily concentrated in small areas. By contrast, 52% of the counties in the United States have zero murders, and another 16% have one murder. So you have almost 70% of the counties in the United States have either zero or one murder that takes place. So that's an intriguing bit of information, and I know that we've uh, talked about it uh, a little bit in the past, but all of those counties, uh, it, Dale, is it because there's just so many people in so few you know, square feet? Or is it something that's going on uh, with the government uh, in those communities? Are they somehow uh, in, in encouraging this kind of behavior? What, I, for the life of me, can't figure out why in just those few blocks in those few counties there is so much crime. Can you? And the, Well, the answer to your preceding question is yes, all the above. Uh, you know, I think packing a large number of people in a small space often results in friction among the people who are packed in there together. And I think the government, the way the administration, the way those counties are run, contributes to the problem. And if you look at the data, uh, most of the, the counties referred to where there's a high crime index are run by liberal politicians and they impl imp implement uh, procedures for law enforcement similar to what we've had in Colombia from time to time where officers are told you just can't arrest people for the following crimes and and then problems occur. Garson, you would think under those circumstances that 
the progressives running those communities would want people to be armed, would want the most vulnerable people in the most vulnerable areas to be able to defend themselves. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if I was running a county or a city, yeah, that's what I would want. But I think I think these people don't want that so they can keep them beholden to them and keep them elected and in power. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems to defy logic, Chuck. Yeah. Um, you know, I think criminals, uh, by nature, they, they, they want soft targets. And when they know that they have victims that are not going to be able to protect themselves, then uh, that lends to easy targets. Well, yeah, and that's why they don't, you know, earn money in an honest way. They're, they're lazy. Criminals are lazy. They want to do the easiest thing possible. So they're they're definitely going to look for you know the least amount of work for the most amount of reward, and that means an undefended soft target. Yeah. So you, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say you know it kind of lends to what Dale said uh, about packing people into a, you know a tight environment and uh, at least a friction. I mean, look look at the studio when there's four of us in the studio and somebody brings up the word cats. <laughs> I'll say yeah. Sometimes you know, I want to things sometimes get I really bad. I want to shoot Carson, but no, yeah. I don't do it. Um, yeah. Well, so we've got this system, uh, especially in uh, in most of the major urban areas. I think St. Louis might be uh, an exception to the rule, but most of these urban areas um, that are in blue states, especially, are really it's difficult to get a concealed carry permit. In fact, historically, in most of these blue areas, you couldn't get one. Uh, it was um, May. Uh, uh, May May issue, issue. yeah May issue, and as I've said on the air many times before, I experienced this in New York, where people were literally calling the program. I had audio of them saying they wanted, uh, they were going to kill me, and the cities in the county said, "Well, you know, we need a better excuse than that." Uh, it occurs to me that maybe they didn't like the show either. We don't uh, agree with you, so we're going to go ahead and let that happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Gary, speaking of May issue jurisdictions, Hawaii was notorious for this, maybe worse than Illinois. And in December, Todd Burke brought this up there, and we just did the concealed carry class for the legislature last week. In December, the state of Hawaii issued its first concealed carry permit. First one, single, first permit ever in Hawaii. Wow. So obviously, they want their people to be sheeple. Yeah, of course, Hawaii does have one advantage over other states. It's not like you can flee to the next state with, <laughs> without without really uh, giving up a lot of information. Well, and they should be really safe. They don't have Indiana bordering them, so all the crime from Indiana can't they spill over to Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a big difference. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, in Dr. John Lott, and I can't wait to get to the part where he shares his uh, efforts with the Justice Department during his Trump years. That's all coming up a little later on Gary on Guns. It is, uh, it is uh, Gary on Guns, and uh, Chuck Basie is with us, uh, a former state representative, Second Amendment supporter. Dale Roberts, uh, MoGunLaw.com, if you've got questions uh, he's the attorney you can go to for answers, and of course, Garson is in from Graphs. Uh, they are, uh, you know, they sell to people all around the world. If you're into reloading, uh, save you a ton of money. 
they've got the equipment. And they sell firearms and pretty much everything else. So, Dr. John Lott was addressing the Federalist Society in Chicago. And he starts talking about the background checks and the availability of firearms for the most vulnerable who are usually in the inner city and usually black. And, you know, the, the left in particular always say how they want to protect them, but it seems like everything they do makes them more vulnerable. Uh, so here he is talking about some of the things they do uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, uh, the difficulty with the next check. So I want to kind of get to the crux of, uh, of the talk here, and that is uh, uncontrolled regulations make it difficult for the very people who benefit the most from owning guns from being able to go and do so. I'm not making a comparison since we're in Illinois right now. Just compare Illinois with neighboring Indiana. In Illinois, about 4% of the adult population has a concealed carry permit. In Indiana, it's over 22%. Why the difference? It's pretty simple. In Illinois, it costs about $450 to go through the process to go and get a concealed carry permit. I'm not talking about the FOIA cards or anything else, but just the cost of the permit and the, and the training requirements that are there. It's, in Indiana, the total cost up until about a year or so ago, was about $12.95, now it's zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, you make something more costly, people do less of it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, but it's not just affecting the number of people who go and get permits. It also affects the composition of who gets permits. If you have to pay $450 to go through the process to get a concealed carry permit, who do you think are the types of people? I mean, we're, just, we're not talking about the price of the gun or anything else. We're just talking about the permit that allows you to legally carry. Basically, what you're going to find is that the type of people who go and get permits are wealthy white males who live in the suburbs. Now, is it fine that they're getting it? Yeah, that's great. But they're not the ones who are most likely victims of violent crime. You're not going to see the same reduction in crime. If criminals, I would argue, what happens with concealed carry permits is you, just like with police, you have higher arrest rates, higher conviction rates, longer prison terms make it risky for criminals to go and commit crime. And as you make it riskier for criminals to go and commit crime, you're going to see less crime going to be committed. Well, the fact that victims might be able to go and defend themselves also makes it riskier for criminals to go and commit crime. But if it's the people who are carrying are the ones that the criminals aren't going to be robbing to begin with, then it really doesn't make much difference. If you're going to want to reduce crime, you're going to have to make it so that the people who are actually the victims are the ones that are caring. But if you make it $450 to go and get a concealed carry permit, guess what? The people who are the most likely victims aren't going to be able to carry. So if you compare Indiana with Illinois, you see a lot more zip codes, which are heavily minority, very poor, having concealed handgun permits in Indiana than you have in Illinois. But it's not just that. It's kind of like they went down a whole list of things to make it impossible for poor blacks to be able to go and carry. So, for example, up until a few years ago, there were no training facilities allowed in Chicago. All right? It's against the law in Illinois to carry even a permanent concealed handgun on public transportation. So let's say you're a poor black 
who lives in Chicago, you're worried about the crime, and you want to go and be able to carry a concealed handgun to protect yourself and your family. Well, it's 16 hours of training here in Illinois to be able to go and get your permit. Uh, let's say you don't own a car. What are you going to have to do? There are no training facilities in, here in Chicago. You're going to have to go and borrow a car on either two or four days because 16 hours, the maximum training time, is eight hours at a time, though most places break it down into four four-hour segments that you're going to have. So you're going to have to borrow a car for maybe four days to travel well outside the city to be able to go and get the training that's there. You know, it's kind of, as I say, it's kind of like they went through every checklist that they can, say how, you know, the cost, the inconvenience, having to go and travel way outside the city to be able to go and get the training. It's kind of like they went out of their way uh, to make it as difficult as possible for them to be able to get permits. I'll show you some data for Texas. One of the things that you've seen over time uh, in the right to carry states, generally not in Illinois, uh, has been uh, the rules have gradually become relaxed in terms of who is allowed to carry uh, and, and the rules on uh, getting permit. So when Texas first uh, adopted its concealed carry law back in 1996, uh, it cost $100, $140 to go and uh, pay for a permit. Uh, it took 10 hours of training to initially get a permit and then it took 10 hours to renew it. Uh, and there was like a long list of like 33 gun-free zones that were listed there. Over time, those have been reduced. And more recently, uh, they moved to constitutional carry, which is kind of just a continuation of the trend, I would argue. But there's some interesting data here. So for example, uh, back essentially in January 2014, uh, they uh, had the reduction in training requirements from 10 hours to three to four hours. Prior to that, the percentage of permit holders that were black was, was falling. After that, it kind of stopped falling and leveled off. And then in 20, uh, 2017, in the middle of the year, they, uh, they reduced the fee from $140 to $40. And what happened? You saw the share of permit holders that were black, not only had it stopped falling, but now was starting to rise. And the interesting thing is, not only uh, did you see uh, this rise in the share, but there's a huge increase in the percentage of permits that were out there. This is just breaking down by race. You can see here white males over time. Uh, uh, so let's see. Uh, oh, black females. This is black females. The huge growth rate that we've seen, and it's really taken off since 2013. And then you have black males here. So black males have grown at about twice the rate that uh, white males have. And for, for black females compared to white uh, females, it's like three times. And, a lot, and that growth has really occurred since they reduced the training and the fee requirements that were there. And you can see uh, the number of permits prior to 2013, it was basically, you know, maybe you see, uh, you know, 20, 30,000 increase per year prior to that. It exploded after they reduced the training requirements and then the fees. And so not only is the share of blacks going up, and particularly the share of black females soaring there, but, uh, you know, the total. So, 
they're really increasing uh, relative to other groups. So if you make it easier to get, they can defend themselves. They're the most vulnerable. It all just seems to make so much sense. And when you listen to what he said is going on in Chicago, uh, and I know this because I interviewed uh, a guy in Chicago uh, a couple of, about a year and a half ago, uh, you you couldn't find a place to train. If you didn't have a car, you couldn't carry a firearm in uh, you know on a bus. You had to leave the city. The cost was exorbitant, leaving the most vulnerable people unable to defend themselves. Just typical of uh, communities run by uh, the anti-gunners. Uh, making the most vulnerable people even more vulnerable. Uh, any uh, any comments on on any of that? Okay, because I I really do want to get on to this uh, this piece that he does about dealing with uh, the Federal Bureau of, of Investigation and the NICS checks uh, because it really tells you how absolutely useless they are. We'll come right back and do that with Garson from Graphs, Chuck Basie. Uh, and uh, also Dale Roberts, MoGunLaw.com, on Gary on Gun. Hey, good morning. Uh, Gary on Guns here. Garson is with us. Uh, so, by the way, is uh, uh, Dale Roberts, MoGunLaw.com. I'm actually uh, responding to some messages. You want to send me a message, uh, you can do it. Uh, just go to uh, GaryNolan.com, and uh, it'll pop up right here in studio. Uh, guys, we've been uh, listening to Dr. John Lott. He gave this uh, this speech to the Federalist Society, and he's now going to talk about the NICS check, which we just uh, we earlier touched on and said it was essentially pretty useless. Uh, and then he's going to talk about his experience uh, as uh, a member of the of the uh, Trump administration. But I think this is important uh, with regards to the validity of that NICS check. Uh, so the frequent claim that is made is that there are 3.8 million dangerous or prohibited people that have been stopped from buying guns because of background checks. And that's simply false. What they should say is there have been 3.8 million initial denials. And then virtually all of those, something like 99% of those are mistakes. It's one thing to stop a felon from buying a gun. It's another thing to stop somebody simply because they have a roughly phonetically similar name and similar birthday to buying a gun. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands for how many people have bought guns in here, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But the, but the thing is, if you buy a gun, you fill out something called a 4473, where you put down your name, your address, your birthday, your race, your gender, your eye color, your social security number, and you think they're going to use all that information. But in fact, what they use is roughly phonetically similar names and similar birthdays. So if you're two people born in June, that's the same, okay, of a particular year. Or if uh, one person uh, name is Smith with an I and another person's name is Smith with a Y and an E, those are considered to be the same uh, names that are there. And the, the problem is, People tend to have names similar to others in their racial groups. Hispanics have names similar to other Hispanics. Blacks tend to have names similar to other blacks. 34% of black males in the United States have felony backgrounds. 18% of Hispanic males in the United States have felony backgrounds. It's 6% for whites, 3% for Asians. Now, why is that important? 
because the mistakes then are overwhelmingly concentrated in black males and Hispanic males because they're more likely to have a roughly phonetically similar name and similar birthday to a, a, a law-abiding good person is more likely to be stopped from buying a gun simply because they have a roughly phonetically similar name and birthday to somebody who is actually prohibited. You're showing me the time? Oh, no. Okay, so, I look, I can talk for hours, so I've tried, but I don't have too many more slides, so you don't have to worry too much. But, uh, so anyway, uh, so you have this false positive problem. It's an easy fix for this. All you have to do is make the federal government have to meet the same standards for doing background checks that private companies have to do. I've been telling gun control people, you know, when I'm in a green room or whatever for a TV show, look, all you have to do is fix this. If there's a couple easy fixes, and I'll tell you the other one in a minute, you can get these universal background check laws passed. But they will refuse to go and, and have the federal government meet the same standards. I don't know if any of you have run a business or know somebody who has. If you were to go to them and they do background checks on employees and you say, you know, I think you ought to use roughly phonetically similar. Well, the point that he's making here is that they could be using the Social Security number. I thought they did all that, Garson. Apparently they don't. I thought they did, too. Um, it's, now, not, it's, not, it's, re it's not required to be provided every time, and since I, I don't. I don't want that on a million freaking documents out there. I don't put it on any form I fill out. Right. It's not required on the 4473, but you can use it. And so I guess maybe people or a lot of people figure, well, I'm not going to give them that. And so phonetically, you know, your name can be pronounced uh, or the, the spelling can be pronounced uh, in a similar way and uh, you've got a birth date that's close, and that's all it takes? It's frightening. For an it's initial denial, apparently, yeah. To think how many people get delayed or denied, you know, when it's when there's nothing wrong with their background or their application. Well, and when you think how bad this system is for all its, like, some complexity, then it's further justification why we oppose... Putting people, you know, denying people who are on the no-fly list, which I think has far fewer safety checks on it. Um, it, it. The problem is so bad that they have a special number that they can assign you called a U-PIN. So if, if you are consistently denied um, in error, you can apply for a special number to provide them to say, hey, I'm not these 30 other John Smiths, I'm this John Smith. Um, even in and above what your social security number would or would not have provided them. So they have this special U-PIN number that you can get, um, which is supposed to clear up those false denials. You, you would think it would be more accurate than it is. Um, and I haven't gone to Chuck Basie, but I before I go any further, uh, I want to know about Chuck and his campaign to run for the school board. Chuck, I can't endorse you <laughs> for your own good. Yeah. Uh, Brian won't yeah, let that's me. that's your reminder. See, what, now watch this. I'll, I'll try this. We'll see if it works. Well, I would like to... See, no. Huh? Yeah, see, it doesn't work. Don't do that. You got um, a shock collar on him? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you should hear the expletives. But, um, 
you you did make it. You are going to be on uh, uh, in the race that is. And uh, it, uh, is there anything else? Are there any other obstacles? No, uh, it uh, was kind of unfortunate. I had to go through the court battle and rack up legal expenses. But uh, having said that, uh, because the school district did what they did, it has made fundraising remarkably easier. So I've, uh, I'm accumulating quite a uh, campaign fund, and I think I'm going to be able to afford to do uh, some radio work even. And it's looking really, really good. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to win, but uh, certainly when you have a lot of uh, uh, funds, it, it enables you to do some things that normally uh, in a race like this you wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. So, but uh, I'd be uh, I'd be inclined to donate to that if I only knew how. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can go to uh, www.chuckbasie47.com, and that's B A S Y E, and uh, there's a donate function on that uh, website, and um, uh, or you can mail a check to my PO Box 114 in in Roachport, Missouri 65279. So I appreciate that, Gary. Forty-seven. So you you do you 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 just pulled a number that was uh, one third your age and <laughs> threw it in there. Well, I thought it was better to use my IQ. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we'll get back to uh, John Lott, uh, but uh, Dale, um, you guys uh, put on a class, a legislative class, and you had a lot of Democrats from the uh, from the state house. Yes, indeed, and it's a bit unusual. We usually have a mix from the House and the Senate, male, female, Republican, Democrat, but the concealed carry classes past week, I think easily half the class were Democrats, which I'm delighted to see. Yeah, but what was the motive? Was it so that they could conceal carry and protect themselves, or was it so they could look for some kind of loophole or something? I think they're going to carry. I, I mean, we've had this in the past where... Uh, um, you know, a known liberal is sort of on the front row of the class with their arms, you know, their body language. And we're thinking they're just here to check us out. And by the end of the class, they tell us, I'm getting my permit. I'm going to carry. Wow. All right. Um, to John Lott in just a few with his experience with the FBI. I'm Gary on Guns. <laughs>